Hey guys, today's episode is my conversation with tennis coach and YouTube superstar Nick Aracic, aka the intuitive tennis guy. He's truly a down-to-earth guy who loves tennis, and I am so grateful to him for being real in our conversation. He shared the good and the bad that comes with an online presence, how he developed his teaching methodology, of course, his story, and many other things, so you will just have to listen. I find what he does fascinating because it is so different from being at a club 24-7. Remember, you can follow Vita Tennis on social media, on Facebook as Vita Tennis, and on Instagram as Vita Tennis Podcast. Learn from one of the best out there, only here at Vita Tennis. Enjoy! Welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. My name is Jennifer Gelhaus, and today I am talking with Nick Arasik, who you may know as Intuitive Tennis from your social media. Nick started teaching tennis when he was 15 years old at his father's club in Germany, and he has now 25 years of coaching experience. He was a teaching pro at the Clock Tower Racket Club in Rockford, Illinois, a head pro at the Mauna Lani five-star resort in Hawaii, and the director of tennis at the Royal Kona Tennis Club in Hawaii. He also called, played and coached at Murray State University. He developed a teaching methodology called intuitive tennis that he teaches online via video analysis, Zoom lessons, and his super popular YouTube channel, which has more than 46 million views and over 240,000 subscribers. Nick, welcome to Vita Tennis. I'm a fan of your videos. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me on. And Nick, did I say your name right? I feel like I asked you about your name, but not your last name. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Say it again. I said Arasic, I think, but I, I'm pretty sure that's no, right. No, it's, uh, it's, it's Aracic. Think of Djokovic. Yeah, oh, like, okay. um, you know, the Croatian and Serbian names or Bosnian, it's like a chich at the end or itch. Got it. Okay. Nick Arac. Yeah. So you started teaching at your, at your dad's club in Germany, but was teaching tennis always the plan for your career? Yeah, so I actually started teaching at 13. It was super early, and I'm very thankful to my dad that he put me on the court at that early of an age. And not only did I teach at 13, but I also taught private lessons to adults, which is like very scary for a 13-year-old. And sure. for that reason, I, de I developed a lot of like confidence on the court teaching lessons from a young age and a lot of experience as well. But my goal was to become a tennis player, like to become a professional player. So I trained a lot and teaching was something that I did on the side. So in a way, you could say that teaching might have held back my tennis career a little bit because I've always had that plan B. And then when I got a little bit older, 17, 18 years old, and I had a pretty good level and my friends were off playing futures, I was very reluctant to do that because I always had lessons during the week and then I would play the club matches for money on the weekend or prize money tournaments. So it made no sense for me to go full-time playing tennis and spend money and travel because I had it pretty good. I had a pretty good setup and I had a good schedule of lessons really from being a teenager all the way up to now. So in a way, you could say that teaching held back my playing career a little bit, but in turn, it gave me so much experience that I'm very grateful for because what happens to most pros that were also players is that they play on tour and they don't really teach. And then when they're done, then they start teaching. And a lot of times they lack experience. 
They might be really good players, but they don't have any teaching experience. And I, on the other hand, have a tremendous amount of teaching experience. So it really helped me a lot, the fact that I started young. I can't imagine being a 13-year-old teaching adults. That's nerve-wracking for even a 20-year-old. So that's amazing that you were able to do that. And so now you've been teaching for 25 years. That's that's a lot of teaching experience. And you've uh, developed intuitive tennis and this methodology. But can you tell us about intuitive tennis, how you developed that and what it's about? Yeah. So I would have to kind of go way back in the way my dad was coaching. My dad was a very good coach. We're from Split Croatia, a city that has produced a lot of great players. In fact, the tennis club Split has produced many top 10 players. Goran Ivanišević, Niki Pilic, Mario Ančić three examples that came out of that club and there's many other names and my dad was the head pro at that club and he also was the captain of the yugoslavian national junior team that had imanishevich and selish on the team so he was really a high level coach and i learned from him i was very influenced by him and how i coached early on which was very similar to my teaching methodology, which I named intuitive tennis. But then when I moved to the United States, I changed my coaching style a little bit to more of a very technical approach. Let's just put it that way, to a less intuitive approach. And I did that early on. And then when I would go back to Europe, I kind of started to clash with my dad a little bit. He wasn't really approving of my teaching methods. methods, And I slowly started understanding that some of the things that I was teaching didn't make a lot of sense, which led me to do a tremendous amount of research. And it led me to create intuitive tennis. So I kind of started very early on teaching more of the intuitive way, then kind of changed my ways a little bit. And then later on, went back to teaching the intuitive way. And what is the intuitive way? What does that mean to you? Basically, the intuitive tennis methodology is based on the fact that some technical elements on the strokes happen intuitively without the players being conscious of them. In other words, like when you learn the fundamentals and you start accelerating the strokes faster and faster, certain technical elements start to take place that players have no idea that they're taking place. In other words, they're happening intuitively. So basically, the methodology is based on teaching the fundamentals and allowing those intuitive elements to develop on their own. Can you give us an example, like of just maybe one stroke or a specific thing that might sure. not be intuitive, but you're saying it's intuitive or should be intuitive? So it's not really a stroke. It, it's certain technical elements in the stroke. So I'll okay. just give you one example. For example, like a lot of recreational players are very worried about the fact that they don't approach the ball on edge on their serve. So they have an open racket face on the approach to the ball. And so they will start doing all kinds of exercises and drills to approach the ball on edge. In other words, to pronate into the contact. And that is just one example of a technical element that will completely take care of itself. Like, for example, I have a pretty good serve. I spent my entire playing career without even knowing that the racket is supposed to be on edge. In other words, this is something that completely happened on its own simply by learning the fundamentals and then slowly with time accelerating faster and faster. And yeah, that's just one example of many where certain technical elements, these little intricate details on the stroke take care of themselves. And there's a danger that if you start tinkering with those intuitive elements that you can cause some damage and halt your development. That makes total sense. I just wanted maybe a little bit of clarification on it because 
I've seen your videos and they're great. They're wonderful. They're very, they seem to me very technical. You're excellent at explaining the technical intricacies of any shot, right? From what I've seen. So it does make sense. There are a lot of intuitive parts, like you would say, that I, I as a player can recognize that now having to teach, you start thinking about, well, I never really thought about that because now you have to explain it to somebody else, to how they, right. how to do it, right? So it can be a fine balance of getting so detailed that is too much information and too confusing for the person that's receiving it and balancing that with teaching them the best technical way. So it, it, it does make sense. I just wanted to see where you would go with that because I was sure. uh, That's a great question. not necessarily intuitive. That's an excellent question. And I have a video on my channel that's titled, What is Intuitive Tennis? And I have another one coming out titled, Intu intuitive, Tennis is Intuitive by Design. And I start these videos by saying that tennis is not an intuitive game. It is a counterintuitive game. So when you have a complete beginner that steps on the court, they're going to intuitively apply the wrong techniques. In other words, they're going to approach every ball with their strengths because that's going to give them the biggest chance of making contact with the ball. So they're going to basically do everything wrong the first time they step on the court. So tennis is technical. The fundamentals have to be taught if you want to have any chance of having these little intricate, small details of the strokes take care of themselves. You have to learn the fundamentals because ultimately tennis is a counterintuitive game. You rarely, if ever, see a beginner that can master the strokes completely on their own. I'm sure it happens sometimes, but generally I've taught many beginners in my career. They all have very similar attributes and very similar mistakes and they intuitively apply the wrong technique. So fundamentals yeah. absolutely have to be taught. No doubt about it. So then it becomes intuitive once once you kind of get the fundamental, right? Is that well, kind the of formula is, the formula is is the fundamentals, and then it's reps. Then it's confidence in swinging faster and faster. And eventually, once you start swinging fast, now you're going to start seeing some intuitive elements take care of themselves. For example, the lag on the forehand, the way the pros do it, or pronation into the contact are all things that are a result of the fundamentals plus reps, plus confidence, plus acceleration. Right. Then it becomes something that you don't have to think about. Well, you can't think about it anyway because yeah. these things are occurring in a matter of milliseconds. Players are not aware that these things are taking place. I'll give you an example of myself that I spent my entire teaching career not knowing that my racket was on edge close to the contact. And many of the high-level players and professional players that I've talked to, they have the same experiences. They're very unaware that some of these little intricate details take place on the strokes. Now, in the era of YouTube, where you have so much slow motion footage available, a lot of recreational tennis players get obsessed on these small little intricate details and they try to learn them. And that's when I do see some problems. Yeah. Because why? <laughs> because when you're trying to recreate something that's happening in milliseconds, Let's just take an example of the lag on the forehand, the way it's done on the tour. When you try to recreate that at the conscious level, you're forced to, number one, slow the stroke way down so that you can execute that movement. And on top of that, you probably have to shorten your stroke severely in order to make that happen. So when you do that, you're going to build big hitch into your strokes. You're going to lose the fluidity, the continuity of the stroke, the sequencing of the acceleration. It's going to be a 
act up robotic looking stroke. Whereas if that little lag is inside of the stroke happening in a matter of milliseconds, now it's actually not visible to the naked eye and it's happening in context of the entire stroke, the way it's supposed to accelerate. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So in essence, yeah, so in essence you, it, those elements of strokes have to be performed intuitive if they want to be performed correctly. Because if you want to do this, for example, the lag on the forehand or the pronation at the contact, there's many other examples. If you want to do that at the conscious level, you can only do it if you slow your stroke way down. Because if you watch players in real time, you can't even observe those technical elements with the naked eye. that are just happening too fast. It's a matter of milliseconds. You can't see the racket being on edge shortly before contact. That part of the serve is over in milliseconds. You can't even see that part. Slow motion footage, of course, you can see everything, every little detail. I always like to learn from other people that also teach tennis because I think sometimes different, the way you explain things might click with someone, but not with someone else. Some people get you, some people don't, right? So I think the more as a pro that you can see how other people teach it, the better it is, the, the better you get at explaining it. So that's kind of how I have seen your channel, right? Because I've had times where I'm, maybe struggling to get through to a player and I'm like how do I explain this better and then I look up instructional videos I'm like oh I like how this guy broke this down or how he said this part and then I'll use that so that's super helpful as a tennis pro to mm -hmm. to kind of see these videos as well but what made you start a YouTube channel for for tennis teaching and tennis instruction that I'm curious to know about that. Yeah, I'm going to answer that question, but let me backtrack one thing though that I do want to mention, something that's super important as it relates to your question before, and that's the fact that I put a big emphasis in differentiating between fundamentals and style. And this is going to transition into the question that you just asked. This is where I've done a tremendous amount of research. And I've been able to establish fundamental elements and strokes that all high-level players have in common. And I've also been able to establish stylistic differences. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to the recreational level, most of the time, people are trying to copy stylistic elements of players. For, like, for example, take the forehand, and there's going to be the top, if you take the top 100 players in the world, there's going to be differences on the forehand within those 100 players. Boris Becker said, when you look at the best 100 forehands, you're going to see that when you look at the top 100 forehands in the world, you're going to see 100 different forehands. And there's a lot of truth in that. And unfortunately, Players will pick their favorite pro, Federer, for example, and they'll try to copy stylistic elements on his forehand, for example, and apply it to their own game, and that doesn't work. So that's a very important caveat to the intuitive tennis teaching methodology that I do differentiate between fundamentals and style, and I do allow players to develop their own style. And now to answer the question that you just asked, when I was building the intuitive tennis methodology, I did a tremendous amount of research. It took about five years. And like I said in the beginning, I changed my teaching ways completely and I had great success with it. The students that I had, which were mostly high-level juniors down here in Southeast Florida, got a lot better. Their rankings shot way up. The parents were so amazed at the transformation and the improvement that they kind of convinced me to put this information out to the public. It also coincided with the fact that until my dad got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And unfortunately, he didn't ever write a book. He didn't ever put anything on paper, recorded a few videos here and there, but never really went public with his methodology. And I just thought he's taking 
everything to the grave with him. I mean, he gave me a lot of guidance. He taught me a lot, but he's taking everything to the grave with him, all that information that can be valuable to so many players. So I thought, you know what? The people that I'm working with, I write. I'm going to put this information out there. I'm going to write a book. So I started writing a book titled Intuitive Tennis, and I got about 60 pages done, and it just wasn't going anywhere. I realized that I need a ghost writer, and it was very difficult to process of writing. So I decided, you know what? Like, instead of writing this book, I'm just going to present this information in video format. And that's how I started the YouTube channel. And right from the get-go, if you look at the first three videos, I think my second video has like 300,000 views. So right from the get-go... People really liked and resonated with the information that I was presenting. That's amazing. Do you happen to know which type of video or topic of instruction has the most views or most interest? Well, you know what? When we're talking about YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, because it's all different. All, all the really? platforms are different. So you, which platform are you referring to? I guess YouTube, since you have such a huge following on YouTube, which yeah. like, is it the serve? Is it a specific stroke or anything like that? Well, YouTube is a very complex algorithm and it's not the same. It changes very fast. So when I first started, which is now four years ago, for example, if you did a video on a kick serve or on a modern forehand, or if you did a video on the wrist lag, you had a decent chance of the video doing well. There's never any guarantee when you select a topic that the video is going to do well. But let's just say those keywords perform better than others. But it has completely changed. Now, if you make a video on the wrist lag or on the modern forehand or on the kick serve, it really doesn't make any difference. So the algorithm always changes. So it's hard to say which topics are the most popular. But I can tell you one thing that I did that was different from what everybody else was doing was the fact that I would teach my lessons and I would just turn the camera on. Because before I did this, people would have students on the court, but they would be talking to the camera and the student would be there just kind of like as a prop. And I always felt that being a little bit of an unnatural kind of an awkward setup. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do my normal lesson. I'm not even going to worry about the camera. I'm going to pretend like the camera is not there. I would tell my students, pretend like the camera is not there. I would be mic, and we would just do a normal lesson. Then when the lesson was over, I would edit the video and the best way that I can. And that format turned out to be extremely successful where my best performing video is close to 3 million views is my beginner lesson with Anna. And it was one of the first times I had tried that type of format. So that format proved to be really, really successful to me. And to this day is still maybe the most popular type of videos that I made is my student lesson. Interesting. Yeah, interesting too that you talk about algorithm and all these things, right? Because there, there's a lot of people doing instructional videos. So I hadn't even thought about that, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking more of, I wonder what is the shot that people are looking up or Googling the most, The perhaps at um, the, perhaps the surf, because it seems to it be changes. complicated. It changes. Yeah. We have to look at it. Like, I think generally people will look for the serve and the forehand the most. Yeah. But the algorithm is tricky. So you can make a return video, which there's not that many return and serve videos out there, and it could do really well. So it's really hard to say. But I would say, generally speaking, I do think like the forehand and the serve, this is what people yeah. are interested in the most. But then, of course, the, the backhand too. I have a video, I have a backhand lesson that also has over a million views. So it's really hard to say. Yeah, sure. But, but one more thing that I wanted to tell you, sorry to sure. cut you off. Yeah. You know, the, 
We're talking about YouTube. It's changing a lot now because the field is so oversaturated now. You have so many channels out there teaching lessons. I mean, when I first started, it was hundreds. Now it's probably thousands. And even on Instagram, like every teaching pro has a YouTube channel and, and gives tips on camera. So an interesting thing happened where the content, I feel like it's starting to shift a little bit where people expect more out of a YouTube video. So I think that if you do a classic tennis instructional video now, the chances of that video doing well are very low. So by, by classic, I mean you stand in front of a camera and talk about how to make topspin on your forehand. Like, I feel like there's so many of those type of videos out there now that people are expecting more. So you have channels like the Tennis Brothers. I don't know if you're familiar with Felix from the Tennis Brothers. I actually was looking up last night to see what other instructional videos are out there and I found them. That They were one of the first ones. So this is the kid that's trying to get an ATP point so it's not really instructional, but it's still like tennis content and he's doing extremely well. You have other channels like My Tennis HQ and Racket Flex who are a little bit younger coaches who are resonating more with the younger audiences. And something that happened during the pandemic where everybody was bored and there was no tennis, a lot of the famous coaches and famous players current or former players started posting videos. So it's just a tremendous amount of content out there where you, I mean, even Venus Williams started a YouTube channel where she's teaching how to hit a forehand and how to hit a serve. So it's, it's really very saturated now. So it's becoming very challenging. It's very necessary to make super high quality videos now in order to have any type of success. I can imagine now also top court with the professionals. That's what, is that what it's called? Top court, right? Yeah. So that's, that's what I was telling you. Like, during the pandemic, a lot of the pro players started making courses because they probably needed a little bit of extra income. They were bored, had nothing to do. So you have all of a sudden top 10 players in the world teaching you technique. So that's what happened. And now you even have famous coaches that everybody knows in the world that have their own YouTube channel. So yeah, no, it's become very competitive, very saturated field. I bet. And were you always comfortable in front of the camera or is that something that you had to work on? Well, if I remember back to that, when I was writing that book and then I decided to present my information on camera, it took me three months to release my first video. And then I didn't even release the video that I was making in those three months. I released something completely different. So this is something that every YouTuber goes through. Like they're so scared to make their first video and they want to make it perfect. And that's exactly what happened to me. I kept re-recording that video because I thought it was awful. And then I finally released my first video and it was on forehand grip. And I thought it was good enough to post then. But when I look at that video now, it's awful. I mean, everything about it is awful. So in the beginning, it's tough because you're just not maybe comfortable talking into a camera. It's, it's kind of weird. And then also the editing part, there's a lot to it. And then as you do it more, you get better at it. So in the very beginning, it was tough. But I've produced content consistently over the last four years, almost on a daily basis, that I got better quite, quite fast, actually. So it was only in the very beginning where I had trouble with that. That's always the hardest part is getting started and pressing yeah. the publish button. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. So what does a, a normal day look like for you? Is this your full-time job now? So it is full-time. I do still teach because I never really want to give up teaching. I like it. I don't teach like I used to. I used to teach, of course, like everybody else, eight hours a day. So now I do maybe five hours per week of teaching on the court. So I don't really ever want to give that up because I do enjoy the in-person coaching. I like being connected to the people 
in that real way on the court, being together with them. So I never want to give that up, but I do have a lot of work running my membership site, making contact with my YouTube channel. Also do a lot of virtual coaching via video analysis, Zoom lessons, and it's very multifaceted. So there's just a lot of work that needs to be done and it doesn't give me a lot of time to be on the court, but I still do it. How does a Zoom lesson work? You basically have the player on the court and then you're just kind of watching and providing feedback. You know what? It's actually really good. If you were to ask me like, what do I think about virtual coaching and video analysis and all that stuff? Like 10 years ago, I would have probably told you it's, it's no good, but now that I've done it, I've seen some amazing results with my players where some of them were able to improve from complete beginner to like 3.5, 4.0, some even 4.5 level. And this is without me ever being on the court with them. So the, whether it's Zoom lesson or video analysis, the advantage is that, but it's more for the video analysis, that the one, when you are looking at the stroke and video, you see more than you would see uh, when you're on a court with them. So that's, of course, an advantage. And the student has this footage and they can go over the footage multiple times. Whereas on a, on a lesson on the court, they might forget some of the stuff you told them. So that's why I, when I'm on the court with players, I tell them to take notes when they're done so they don't forget. But with video analysis, they have the footage forever. They can review it and it's very valuable and it can help a lot of players. So I highly recommend video analysis. But as far as Zoom lesson, it's actually really good because the student has to have a tripod and they have to have a phone and a internet connection and they have to have a earpiece you know an airpod so they can hear me and they can talk and so they put the camera let's say they're doing serves they put the camera in the back so i can see them and i step up to the ba baseline with the basket and they have an earpiece and i just start coaching them i start giving instructions and they can hear exactly what i'm saying i can see exactly what they're doing so it's a really good service that's so interesting because video analysis of course it's oof I think it's super, super useful to see yourself hit because sometimes your coach tells you you're doing this and maybe you don't believe it or you just just kind of don't get it. But then you see yourself and you're like, ah, everything kind of clicks and now you can work on it. So video analysis has is such a such an amazing tool. But when it comes to just kind of teaching online, how do you provide an experience? Right. Because people can learn how to or kind of watch a video on how to hit a forehand but how do they apply it and how do they do that kind of online because like you're watching something that's great you have the information but it takes more than knowing the information it takes like constant feedback and um hearing from the pro and that right. that kind that's of that's a really good question so you're right you're 100% right where let's say somebody takes a video analysis service for me and they go back on the court and they're alone. So it's not a guarantee that they're going to correctly implement my teachings. There's no guarantee whatsoever. And some are better at implementing what I tell them to do than others. It's just different personalities. I'm sure you've seen it where player, you can tell something to a player once they do it and others, you have to repeat it hundreds of times. So what I have done to kind of bypass this issue is that I provide like a coaching package where I am doing continuous video analysis. In other words, I do one where I tell them what to correct and then go back on the court, they record themselves implementing the corrections. They send me the footage and I take a look at it and see if they're doing it correctly and then so on. And I do that on a daily basis. So that's one way to bypass that. But you're right. It's not a guarantee that the student is going to do it correctly if they're 
out there by themselves. That's why, of course, in-person lessons are the best. I'm not going to sit here and say that virtual lessons are better than in-person lessons. Of course, in-person lessons, the coach is right there. You can make corrections right there on the spot. So, And also the student would have to be so disciplined to keep working on whatever you've told them to work on. So it would almost make sense for you to work with, and I don't know, maybe you do that, to work with, maybe they have a coach at home and then you can kind of collaborate on whatever that needs to happen, whatever technical changes sure. need to happen. There's been some instances where there's been other coaches. Sure, but yeah, no, you're right about that. Are there any coaches that have inspired you, maybe online or in person, other than your dad, of course? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've had a lot of coaches that were very important to me. My college coach, Mel Purcell, who was a um, Wimbledon top 25 ATP player. I had the pleasure of having him as a coach for my entire college career. He was an inspiration. Uh, Nikki Pilic, I don't know if you know Nikki Pilic. He is a coach from Split Croatia who coached Djokovic very early on. He has an academy in Munich and he was also um, Davis Cup captain for Germany in the glory days of Germany with Becker and so on. And also Davis Cup captain for Croatia and Serbia. So to me, he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. And I draw a lot of inspiration from him. As far as like tour coaching, like professional coaching, Brad Gilbert has always been one of my favorites. Uh, I love the way he coaches. The book Winning Ugly was one of the greatest coaching books ever written. But I would have to say like my absolute favorite coach as far as like style and way of coaching at the professional level would probably be Ivan Lendl. Oh, really? Yeah, which is really... A lot of that stuff is kind of secret, like we don't get too much of an insight into the coaching methods. But when he was with Murray and Murray didn't have a Grand Slam title to his name and he started working with Lendl and all of a sudden he, he won all those Grand Slams. And some of the stuff that I read and how they work together, I was fascinated. So those are some of the names that I was inspired by. Awesome. And I'm curious going back your YouTube and your intuitive tennis stuff. What is the biggest demographic of your students? Is it mostly juniors? Is it worldwide? Is it American kids? What's your largest demographic? So it is worldwide. It's number one country is the United States. And then it's like UK, Germany, Australia, some of the Indians, like a lot of the big English speaking countries, but then all, it's also India. It's really from all over the world. So it's very global. And the demographic is mostly men on YouTube. It's a little bit different on the TikTok and on Instagram, but on, on YouTube, it's mostly men. And I would say the age, the biggest amount of people that watch me is probably age range, I would say 35 to 65. So I would say recreational adult male players is probably who watches me the most. I would think probably it kind of makes sense because, and I could be wrong, but they might be the most self-sufficient that could just go out there and practice something on their own, just grab a basket of balls and practice. I do have an opinion on that because yeah. I, I mean, I was just a regular coach down here in Florida. So I don't know if it's the same. You were in Tampa, right? Yeah. When I was a coach here, the people that took lessons were ladies. So it was mostly ladies tennis because the guys would take lessons in the afternoon, maybe super early in the morning. But if you were teaching lessons in the morning... It was probably ladies that were on a ladies team. I find that those type of players, they don't watch YouTube videos. They could not care less. 
They don't care about the technical intricacies. They don't. More for the social and fun part of it. Okay, you can say that, but I feel like they want a shortcut to success on the court. So they will, they love figuring out a way to win. So they are very interested in tactics and strategy and not so interested in technique. Whereas the men are highly interested in technique and getting the reps in and grinding and playing matches and stuff like that. And yeah, and like you said, the ladies, of course, is a social thing, but also I feel like some of them are very competitive and they want to win, but they don't really want to spend time and look at videos and, and correct technique and take a ton of privates to go into detail. This has been my experience. Of course, I'm generalizing, but I find that like a lot of these ladies that I'm very good friends with, they used to take lessons with me. They don't, they don't really watch my YouTube video. They couldn't care less. So there's definitely a difference in who is interested in learning about tennis technique. I think the demographic that's most interested is adult male recreational. I've had a similar experience. You know, you get a lady and it's like, oh, I want to work on my serve. Like, okay, well, we have to break it down. You have to give me a couple months of your time to like really make a significant change. And that rarely, almost never really happens, right? They, they want to take that one lesson, give me the tip, and then I'm done. And like, that's not shortcut. how it works. A shortcut to more wins <laughs> and doubles. They right. Want, they're interested in quick tips. So that's why, like, on Instagram, I have more of a female audience. Because on Instagram, the videos are very short. And I think there, they consume that type of content more. But, yeah, that's definitely true. And what about junior players? Do you work with any junior players? I do. I still do. I get a lot of requests for junior coaching. And most of them I turn down simply for the fact that the parents want me to take on their kid on a daily basis for multiple hours a day. And I just can't do that. I don't have the time for that. But that's what I used to do. When I first moved to Southeast Florida, the first 10 years that was at least 50% of my clientele was high-level juniors. Where now, I still work with some, but I would say 90% are kind of specialized in the adult recreational level. And it makes sense because that happens to be my audience uh, on the internet as well. So that's kind of like my niche, my specialty is the adult recreational level. Well, it's awesome what you've done too, because you work on your own terms, you work when you want, with who you want, and it's very different, right? Do you miss it at all, being at a club and and being in that type of environment? I don't miss it that much simply for the fact that before I moved to Florida, I worked in Hawaii. So I've been exposed to the sun from the age of like 25. And I find it very difficult to be on the sun for like eight hours a day. I just can't, I can't handle it anymore. It just, it's very difficult physically. So for that reason, I don't miss that part that much. You know, when I hear like that Rick Macy's, he teaches six to six, seven days a week at least that's what he said still still so i'm like how can how can he do that like i just i couldn't i couldn't do that it just would be it would be a big challenge to be out in the sun that long i guess i'm more sensitive to the sun than others but back in the day when i worked in rockford illinois to work like a sunday was 24 hours i did 12 hours on saturday 12 hours on sunday and it was no problem it was indoors and it was fun but if i picture myself now this weekend Going out there 24 hours in the sun, I don't think I could do it. It would be difficult. So No way. Don't yeah, get I, don't, me wrong. I, don't I, I love tennis, yeah. but I, I, do not, I would not love teaching 12 hours of tennis. That sounds 
like way too much. Tough, right? Yeah. It's oh tough. yeah. Let's be real. That is crazy. People don't realize the the conditions down here. It's very difficult. So yeah, I don't I don't really miss that part. But uh, like I said, I never want to give up the in person connection with the students, which is the best. I always want to continue to do that. And if I can continue to do that on a limited basis, if I have the luxury to do that, I'm going to continue to do that. If I ever have to teach a little bit more, I wouldn't have any problem with that either. So I do love being on the court. Don't get me wrong. Like that's probably my favorite thing is not only the teaching aspect, but also forming relationships, friendships with the students, the little talks that you have while you're picking up balls. I think that's a, just a phenomenal thing. And students, if they like the coach, they will open up. And they really, I've formed many, many great friendships over the many years I've been coaching on the tennis court. And I never really want to give that up. I want to continue doing that for as long as I can. Absolutely. And also it's a place for you to organically come up with new ideas for your channel and things like that. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's where I, most of my ideas come from the experience I have on the court. Right. I would say 99% of my ideas, they come when I'm teaching. Whether I'm doing a video analysis and I'm observing something specific, a specific mistake, or I'm on the court uh, observing a specific mistake, I say, okay, you know what? There's a mistake that's very common. I've seen this on other players. Make a mental note. And then when I'm done with the lesson, I write down the idea and I may eventually will make a video about that idea. So sometimes from conversations that I have with my students also, naturally things will come up certain topics and if something is really interesting or if a student asks me a super interesting question related to tennis i say okay you know what that's actually a really cool topic for a youtube video and then i will write it down and eventually make a video on it what would you say has been the biggest challenge to doing an online teaching business that's a good question well see the biggest challenge is the uncertainty of it because there is no guarantee that what you're doing is going to continue to work. Let's just put it that way because of the fast changing algorithm and, and the way the internet works is that let's say you have a good year. There's no guarantee that you're going to have a good year the following year. So the uncertainty is a little bit tough to deal with at times. And then of course, if you have some success on social media, you're going to get some trolls, which can be difficult. I find it very difficult to deal with my students being trolled. That's where I get very upset about that. And there's been several things over the last four years where some of my students got really, really, they got really trolled online. And on, they, on your video, they got trolled, like in the comments section? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. The most classic thing, I'll tell you, is just, if I let's have a player, and you'll relate to this because you work at a club, but Let's say you have a player and they're playing on a 4.0 team, okay? They're a legitimate 4.0 player, all right? Now, there's somewhat of a broad spectrum that, first of all, 4.0 can be different age. It could be someone that's 65. It could be someone that's 20, right? But still, the 65-year-old can be on a 4.0 team, right? So there's a wide spectrum. Also, some players are gamers. They might not have the best technique, but they win a lot of matches. And they play at a certain rating because of that. So if I have a player like that, and I've had players like that on my channel, where they don't look that great. And I put in the title, Lesson with NTRP 4.0. The amount of people in the comments writing, that person is a 2.0, he's a 2.5. No way that person is a 4.0. And it's across the line. You go on any YouTube channel that features matches. This is the type of stuff that you will read the most. And 
What actually is quite an interesting topic because what I've experienced is that the vast majority of players that consume tennis content online, they will, number one, overestimate their own level. They will see somebody playing on YouTube and they will say, oh, I can beat that guy. When in reality, they probably can't. And the reason why is that no matter who you put on the camera, they're going to look worse on camera than they look in real life. Yeah. A lot worse. And even if I tell this to a lot of my students, like if you ever record yourself and you look at yourself for the first time, you're going to be in shock how it looks. It's going to look a lot worse than you imagine it to look like. So I think that's what happens online is that players overestimate their own level a little bit. They also don't realize that, let's say, a 4.0 level looks a lot worse on camera than it looks in real life. And then, of course, if they're a troll, they're going to write horrible things in the comment section, say this person sucks and they're nowhere they're, they're lying about their rating and so on. And this goes all the way to the high level. Even if you put somebody like that, I have a player on my channel that was an All-American. Her name is Emma. And you should see some of the comments that she gets. Like she's a 3.5 on a good day and stuff like that. That's the type of comments that, that she's got. So this is something that's uh, difficult to deal with when it comes to my students. Personally, I've kind of gotten a, let's say, a, a thick skin because I've seen it so much. It's almost on a daily basis that somebody writes how much I suck at tennis. Oh, my because God. I make, yeah, because I make a lot of short form content where I feature drills or I will demonstrate techniques and stuff like that. And um, almost on a daily basis, people will say how horrible my technique is and how, how much I suck and stuff like that. So I've grown a thick skin. It doesn't really bother me anymore. It doesn't create any type of reaction from me. But for some reason, when I have a student who's like nice enough to be in my video and it's a personal friend of mine and they get attacked, I do feel a sense of like wanting to protect them. And I do get upset about that. Sure. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. Of course. The last thing you want is for somebody to... Have a bad experience, somebody that helped you make a video to just have a bad experience and have a negative. Yeah. But I will say, though, I'm not like if you are at a level where you're getting some hate, that's actually a good sign, because I think it'd be a lot worse if I would put out videos and there would be no comments at all. You know, if like one comment or two comments. So the fact that people are watching, the fact that there is some engagement there, it's actually a good thing. And naturally, it can't all be positive. There's going to be some negative stuff, too. So I am very grateful for the fact that people are engaged with my content, even if it's negative engagement. Yeah, you could do with less of it, though. But yeah, that's yeah. crazy. I didn't even think about that. That's really interesting. And I, I'm sure you have the thickness of skin. It, it hasn't stopped you. You have I don't even know how many videos online. I mean, you have so well, much you content. You naturally build the thick skin. This happens to everyone because in the beginning, I would get very upset and they're very natural because as a tennis player, you don't really see that in real life. Nobody's going to come up to you and tell you, you suck or your forehand is awful and you give you a list of things that you're doing wrong. This doesn't happen in real life. This is an online thing. So in the very beginning, when I started getting those type of comments, I was very reactive to it. And I would start getting it, getting into it with these type of people. And quickly, I realized it's a road to nowhere. I stopped. But yeah, in the beginning, I did. I was more reactive to it than I am now. So naturally, you learn as you go to not, not get bothered with that. And you understand that there's really no point in, in doing anything with those comments, not even like deleting them, blocking them, just leaving them alone. That's probably the best thing. I'm so glad you brought that up because I wouldn't even have thought of asking you about that. But that is a very real aspect of it. And 
a very human part of it. And I'm sure that's got to suck on every level, especially at the beginning where you're putting yourself out there and, and then somebody goes on and makes a stupid comment. It's got to make you feel terrible. I mean, there's not, there's no way that it doesn't, even if you're tough, it's got to get to you because you're trying, you're, you're doing something and to be criticized for it is, it's never easy. Yeah, that, that sucks. But I know I, I told you this would be an hour, so I want to respect your time. Sure. Before, before you go, I just wanted to see if you could answer our last question, which is what has been the Grand Slam moment of your life and the double bagel moment of your life? So the high and the low. The low could be probably the comments, the stupid comments section, but I'll leave it up. To I do have two moments that were significant. So the worst moment of my tennis life was my last college match. That, that was really awful. And I actually quit tennis. After that, because it was so painful. I mean, people don't realize that at that moment in time, what some players are going through because they don't, some of them don't know what they're going to do with their life. If they're at a decent level, they might try to play a future. They might start teaching tennis or might start doing something completely different. So it's kind of like a difficult time in life where you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. And you're also sad that the college tennis experience is over because you play college tennis, you know how much fun it is to play college tennis. So it was already kind of a sad moment just by itself. But then what happened in that last match kind of added to everything. So I had a pretty good college career and we won our conference the last year and we qualified for the nationals and we played the University of Kentucky uh, in the first round. And I played a guy called Jesse Witten, who was at that time... I think it was ranked four in the NCAA. And after that match, he ended up making it to the final of the NCAA singles tournament. And I played him and I played well that day. And I was up 6-3-5-3-40-15 serving. Now, when you play the Nationals, they call the match once a team gets four points. They don't let the match play out. So as soon as one team gets four points, the match gets called. So in that last game, as I'm serving for it, my coach started telling me through the fence that the one guy, we already lost three points. It was 3-0 for Kentucky. And the one guy was about to lose and the match was going to be called. And as soon as he told me that, I got so unbelievably tight. I had three match points on my serve and my serve as my best shot. And I didn't convert on those match points. And eventually the match was called without me having the chance to finish the match. And on one of the match points, Jesse actually broke a string and passed me with a broken string. And if I would have won that match, I would have qualified for the NCAA singles tournament, which was always tough for me because I played for a small division one school and we didn't get that many like high quality matches. So my ranking was never really super high. I think the highest was 37 in the NCAA. So that match would have helped me tremendously to boost my ranking and I would have definitely gotten into the singles tournament. And I like that not being able to finish that match was like so tough to deal with. And I, I that was definitely the lowest of the low moments because I didn't have any desire to even keep playing tennis. It was just so awful because I just kept thinking about what how great of an ending that would have been to finish out my college career by winning at number one against Kentucky. And it just wasn't meant to be. And I was so close with those three match points and my serve. Like I was thinking, why couldn't you just get a serve as a winner or an ace? So that was definitely the lowest moment. And it took me a couple of years to get out of the funk, actually, I'll be honest with you. I started teaching immediately after that. And then I kind of regained the pleasure of playing matches when I moved to Hawaii. And that's when I started competing again. So I did actually regain the fun for competing. And I did start playing a lot of tournaments. When I moved to Florida too, like men's open tournaments and stuff like that. But it took me a good couple of years to recover mentally from that match. That was definitely the lowest of the low. 
the highest moment, it was when I won my first big tournament in Germany in juniors. See, when I first started playing tennis, I wasn't very good. Genetically, I'm not the most gift, gifted athlete. I'm naturally kind of slow, stiff, uncoordinated. And all that I've been able to achieve in tennis was through hard work. There wasn't a lot of talent there. And so when I first started and I moved to Germany when I was nine, and when I first, I didn't really play tennis seriously in Croatia where I was born. But when I moved to Germany at the age of nine, the first two years, I was very bad. And it took me a while to break through. But then all of a sudden, something clicked. And I started like getting better and better. And when I was 13, I got really good. And then there was this one tournament. There was like a big national ranking tournament with players from all over Germany. And actually, out of the qualies, I ended up winning the whole thing. And beat players that were like ranked top 50 in Germany, or I don't remember now, but maybe even higher than that. And we were very, very happy when I won that tournament. Our whole family was like, I remember that being like one of the happiest moments because of the breakthrough. Like all of a sudden now, after that tournament, I was like considered one of the best juniors in the whole country and I continued to play well. But something like something clicked that week. And I don't know, I can't really explain it, but I'll never forget. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's hard to believe, I guess, that you think that you're unnatural in any way at tennis, but that could be why you're so great at coaching too. Relatively speaking, like I have some of my friends who are top 200 in the world and are top 100 in the world. So I'm speaking relatively to like the highest possible level. Compared to them, I'm saying that I'm not as gifted like genetically yeah. in, that, in that regard. So I'm being a, probably a little bit too critical of myself, but I'm just comparing myself to like the players that you see on TV. I feel like that naturally I was an athlete that's, that was gifted enough to be that athletic, to be able to compete at that level. Yeah. And then one follow-up question to your low moment. Do you hold yeah. it against your coach that he told you what was going on? Because I've coached college myself. And oh, that's something I wouldn't do. But I don't know if, if you ever thought about that. Like, oh, maybe he shouldn't have told me that, you know? That's such a great question. And I never thought of it until I did make a YouTube video on this topic and I did tell this story on YouTube and people in the comments were saying exactly what you said. He kind of like sabotaged me, but unintentionally, of course, I don't know. I'd see, but then what if he didn't say anything? I would have like lollygagged over there because I take a lot of time between points. So what if he didn't say anything and I'm taking my sweet old time over there and not like, so I'm actually like kind of grateful that he did tell him because what if I would have like taken my time and then they called the match. So I did kind of had to hurry up. So people yeah. don't understand like the, the context is this stupid college rules. This yeah. is not a normal tennis match. Like when, if it's a normal tennis match, you don't have to deal with time pressure. And generally it doesn't really matter if they call the match. Like this was just such a weird circumstance where it was my, it was definitely my last match. We were losing. I was never going to play college tennis again. And there I had these three match points and I was out of time. It was just it was just a weird thing. So I never really blame Mel. And I still to this day I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blame him. But you can look at it a couple of different ways. I think you're right. Maybe yeah. if he didn't say anything, I wouldn't have gotten tight and I would have served an ace. Who knows? And nobody's perfect. Maybe he made a mistake there. I mean we're all we're all human, you know. It, it's sure. All sure. <laughs> Oh, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time today. This this was wonderful. My pleasure. Stay in touch, okay? Thanks. Absolutely. All right, best of luck with everything. And don't listen to no trolls. They suck anyway. (laughs) Never. never. All right, take care. All right, Nick. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you so much for listening to Vita Tennis. Make sure to check out Nick's YouTube videos if you're not familiar with them. You can find him as Intuitive Tennis on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. His website is also intuitivetennis.com. As usual, you can find all the links in the show notes. And as always, please feel free to reach out to me via email at vitatennispodcast at gmail.com with any suggestions or questions you may have. Check out other episodes and please share with someone you think would find it interesting or useful. Thanks for listening. Until next time.